that's why the cooperative model or the employee ownership model is so attractive. First, it, it distributes the profits of the company to people who built the company, not to outside investors and people remote. And second, it's attractive because if you think about it, the logic, if you and I and Mike and 20 of our friends lived in a community and owned that company because we work there and we own a share, we're co-op members, we're not gonna to vote to send our jobs to Phoenix or to China. We're gonna keep that business where it is. So it helps anchor the business. So those are many of the different sort of design principles that are different. And the final thing I'd say is um, this is not theory. There are literally thousands of community wealth building inspired and designed companies and structures all over the country. There are thousands, there are over 10,000 companies in America that are owned in whole or in part by their employees through employee stock ownership plans. There are hundreds of worker cooperatives. There are thousands of credit unions, community development financial institutions, social enterprises exploding all over America. Many of these, this is this is a charity, it's even for-profit, but it's for-profit with a social mission and a broadly shared ownership structure. And that's what community wealth building is all about. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Hi there, and welcome to Infinite Earth Radio, where each week we interview thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. In episode number one of Infinite Earth Radio, Matthew Dalby, director of the US EPA's Office of Sustainable Communities, spoke about the need to become better stewards of not only our environment, but stewards of our economy. The growth trajectory that drove the economy of the 20th century no longer exists, and the economy and economic development in the 21st century will need to look quite different. In today's bonus episode of Infinite Earth Radio, we share an interview we did last year with Ted Howard, the executive director of the Democracy Collaborative, and a presenter at the 2015 New Partners for Smart Growth Conference about community wealth building as a superior model for local economic development. Welcome, Ted, and thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. It's great to be with you, Mike, and hi, Bernice. Good to be with you again. Thank you, Ted, for joining us. So let's dive right in. What's the theory of change that drives the Democracy Collaborative? We start with this premise that the ownership and control of capital, of money that can be invested, is a key determinant of power in any economic system. So who owns capital is essential. And at this time in America, we don't need to belabor the fact we all know that wealth is becoming ever more concentrated and that we have tremendous economic, environmental and social challenges. And it comes down to this question of who owns what in the country. And so our theory of change is that needs to be addressed. But no one organization, certainly not the Democracy Collaborative, is big enough to do it alone. And therefore, we're most effective, we think, when we can work with and inspire others to act, and, and in particular to act to build wealth in communities and across this country for the working men and women of America. 
Can you bring us up to date, Ted, on what the Democracy Collaborative has been doing in Cleveland? I'm a somewhat inveterate reader of um, Politico, the political website, and I was reading over the weekend and there was this wonderful piece about the work that you all are doing in Cleveland, though the title didn't actually sort of lead you there. But I, you know, I was interested and it said, you know, what's going on in Cleveland? And there was this wonderful, you know, just hundreds of words about what you all are doing in Cleveland. So can you share with our audience, you know, what your approach has been and what you're trying to do and where things stand? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, First of all, I'm speaking to you from Cleveland. And let me say, never in my wildest imagination that I think I'd end up living in Cleveland, Ohio. (laughs) But I I was really drawn here because there is some extraordinary innovation taking place in Cleveland uh, in the field of economic and community development. And I was very fortunate in my organization, the Democracy Collaborative. We were invited in 2007 by the Cleveland Foundation. It's the oldest community foundation in the nation to come to Cleveland and help develop a wealth-building strategy in very low-income neighborhoods. Um, There are 50,000 residents in these six neighborhoods. 40% live below the poverty line. The median household income is below $18,500. As you know, the the national federal poverty line is set at over $22,000. So it's a very disinvested area. And we hit on the idea of leveraging the procurement power, the supply chain, if you will, of of a number of very large hospitals and universities and other anchor institutions in Cleveland. Uh, They tend to be nonprofit businesses that don't exit the community. They're rooted in place, places like the Cleveland Clinic. The idea was, how can we tap into their billions of dollars that they're spending year in, year out, but which are not making it into the neighborhoods? It's exiting the region and drive that money locally and drive it into a new network of local community-based businesses. And these are called the Evergreen Cooperatives. So what I became involved in was a startup business development strategy employing people with barriers to employment and residents of low-income neighborhoods in companies where they own a piece of the action, they're cooperative, so everybody has a share of the company. And when it's profitable, everyone shares in the profits. So you make not only a living wage and you have very good benefits, but you share in the profits of your labor. And they provide goods and services to the anchor institution. So we have three companies up and running. One is a commercial industrial scale laundry, big facility that's capable of doing 10 million pounds of laundry a year, the greenest such facility in Northeast Ohio. We have a renewable energy and solar and LED lighting company that's doing big solar arrays. Recently, we put in one megawatt solar field right in the heart of of very low-income neighborhoods, 5,000 solar panels producing clean energy to the universities and hospitals. And we have a large food production greenhouse that's growing leafy greens, uh, lettuces, and, and basil and herbs. Two of the companies are profitable. That's good for startups. We still haven't hit profitability yet with the greenhouse, but we're working diligently. And there are a number of other uh, companies in the pipeline. We have about 120, 130 people employed, making living wage. Uh, It's a very exciting learning laboratory, if you will. And it's something that has caught the imagination of folks around the country. There's actually going to be an evergreen-inspired company opening in Prince George's County in Maryland in 2015 
that will be doing stormwater mitigation and management for Prince George's County under contract. There are other companies going. So that's what we're doing in Cleveland. And, you know, it's uh, very exciting uh, and very gratifying work. So, Ted, I live in Prince George's County, so you're going to have to tell us a little bit more about what is going to happen here in Prince George's County. Sure. Um, You probably know that all over the country, uh, literally hundreds of cities and counties are under what's called an Environmental Protection Agency consent decree. Yes. Where, um, you know, cities have to clean up their stormwater outflow. You know, these are systems that were built, you know, 50, 100 years ago when it rains a lot the water flow and the sewage overflow combine and then they go into rivers and in right. the case of the Washington DC area, Anacostia, Potomac and so forth. And so cities have to clean this stuff up over the next decade and more and, and hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars are going to be spent on this effort. And there are really two strategies for cleaning this up. One is to build giant pipes underground to combine, you know, to carry the water and that's called a, a gray infrastructure. Mm-hmm. But the other way that complements it is green infrastructure. Build wet fields and bioswales and ways to capture the rainwater before it makes it into the sewage system, into the sewer system. Yeah. And in Prince George's County, the county has set aside a percentage of that green infrastructure work to go to a worker-owned company, which is just being put together right now, which will, the anchor client, if you will, will be the county and this workforce, this new company, which will be over time employee owned, will be responsible for installing and maintaining in perpetuity the uh, green infrastructure. So it's, it's the first effort like this in the country. And if this model in Prince George's County works, it could work all over the country. And, and the beauty of it is twofold, really threefold. First, it's a green company and we need more of those in America. Second, because it's really, um, because of the nature of the work, you know, you're planting and maintaining and so forth. You know, there's a low barrier to entry. You don't have to have a college degree to work in green infrastructure. And then third, in order for the jurisdictions to stay compliant with the federal government in terms of the, you know, the sewer problem, yes, you have to maintain the green infrastructure forever. So these are permanent jobs that are being created and, you know, it's, it's great work for people. And, and this company is going to launch this year, City First Enterprises down in uh, Washington, D.C., with the uh, Community Foundation and Washington Regional Association of Grantmakers have helped put this together along with Prince George's County. So mm-hmm. kudos to them. Boy, Ted, does this sound really innovative. I can't wait to see this get off the ground. It points the direction, I think, that, that economic development needs to go in. You know, so much traditional economic development has been what they call smokestack chasing. And, you know, Prince George's County tries to offer lots of incentives to Cleveland to steal one of the companies here and leave Cleveland and throw 100 people out of work and move it to Prince George's County. But then you know, the subsidies run out and the tax abatements and then North Carolina takes the company. And, you know, we're all just moving pieces around rather than building actual wealth in the community. And things like Evergreen and, and innovations like this Prince George's County effort, that's really rooting wealth in the community and keeping it there. And that's the future of economic development in America, I believe. 
Ted, I know that that the work of the Democracy Collaborative really is rooted in this concept of wealth building. How would you differentiate the concept of wealth creation and wealth building from traditional economic development? Well, I think there are a number of, of distinctions here. I, I've just mentioned the, the fact that so much of economic development is just swapping jobs. It's like every city is at war with every other city in America and trying to steal their jobs. Community wealth building is about creating new jobs that are rooted in the community. So one is rooting, is anchoring, is very key. And that means creating businesses that are truly loyal to our community rather than businesses that are simply looking for handouts of subsidies and so forth. So that's one. Uh, second is community wealth building is really based on and and deeply anchored in principles of equity and inclusion. You know, we all know that there are now roughly 50 million people living below the poverty line in the United States. That's actually an underestimate. Our message really to the world is it's fine to leave these people behind. Well, community wealth building is inclusive and says everyone needs to benefit and be included in the the economy and the progress of the economy. So the focus is it's very targeted. It's not just let's improve a regional economy and think that that will trickle down into, into distressed neighborhoods. The focus is intentionally on the neighborhoods. How do we build assets and wealth there? The other part is I just mentioned assets. Community wealth building is very asset-based. You know, the reality is for people that have been disadvantaged, that have barriers to employment, maybe they've been formerly incarcerated or have low educational attainment, the kinds of jobs people are going to get, if they can get jobs, at least initially, they're not going to be $100 an hour jobs. They're going to be jobs that, you know, people with, with obstacles can overcome those obstacles, but they may be a living wage job, but not a high wage job. And so in Cleveland with Evergreen, we adopted a kind of mantra as we put these companies together. And that slogan was, a job alone is not enough. Because we can create a company, a laundry company, for instance, that can get contracts and employ people. And we can pay people $12, $13, $14 an hour. And that's far above the industry standard. But you're just not going to get ahead in America on that salary. You need to find a way to supplement the income. And community wealth building is very much about that. How do you create additional assets in addition to income? And that's why the cooperative model or the employee ownership model is so attractive. First, it, it distributes the profits of the company to people who built the company, not to outside investors and people remote. And second, it's attractive because if you think about it, the logic, if you and I and Mike and 20 of our friends lived in a community and owned that company because we work there and we own a share, we're co-op members, we're not going to vote to send our jobs to Phoenix or to China. We're going to keep that business where it is. So it helps anchor the business. So those are many of the different sort of design principles that are different. And the final thing I'd say is um, this is not theory. There are literally thousands of community wealth building inspired and designed companies and structures all over the country. There are thousands, there are over 10,000 companies in America that are owned in whole or in part by their employees through employee stock ownership plans. There are hundreds of worker cooperatives. There are thousands of credit unions, community de development financial institutions. 
social enterprises exploding all over America. Many of these, this is this is a charity. It's even for profit, but it's for profit with a social mission and a broadly shared ownership structure. And that's what community wealth building is all about. You know, with the profit incentive built into this, particularly for things like, you know, laundry services that, you know, might typically have become dead-end jobs, you now have motivated employees, you probably have a higher level of performance. Um, it, it, it's it's not a static business, it's a business that can grow and, and become better and, and innovate broadly across the company. What, what I'm interested in is the, the idea of how much the anchor institutions are embracing this idea, and is there is there an opportunity to expand... So I assume you're doing the laundry services for the hospital, the Cleveland Clinic. What about housekeeping services or other other uh, functions that these institutions um, do on a regular basis? Is there any conversation about moving into new areas to create new cooperatives? Yes, absolutely. You know, if you look at the supply chain of these institutions, you know, they're doing everything from they need courier services, housekeeping They've got maintenance issues, they're buying food, they're printing things. So there are huge opportunities, not only in Cleveland, for new business development. Um, and, you know, our hope with Evergreen is that over time, you know, this is, we could build perhaps an, an integrated network of 20 or 30 businesses, all in different business lines, providing all kinds of goods and services and all kinds of jobs to the anchor institutions. In addition, beyond Cleveland, the Democracy Collaborative works in communities all over the country on anchor institution strategies, helping city governments, community foundations, and anchor institutions develop their own local wealth building strategies, usually tied to their purchasing. So right now, for instance, I'm working in the San Francisco Bay Area with Kaiser Permanente, which is if it's a nonprofit hospital system, but it's huge. It has 200,000 employees. And if it were a for-profit company, it would be the 51st largest corporation in America. It is a major institution, not only in the Bay Area, but all over the country. And Kaiser Permanente is really interested in how do we conduct our business in a way that what is called in healthcare intervenes in the social determinants of health. In other words, that's things like create good quality jobs and better communities because people who live in those have better health outcomes. So it's entirely consistent with their own mission. And all over the country, uh, anchor institutions are starting to look at, you know, historically they were walled off from their communities. There's been a lot of distrust and we've all seen that. And, and uh, I know, Bernice lives in Maryland, and, and, you know, there's been a lot of issues in Baltimore, for instance, with large mm-hmm. institutions. But there is a new day where I think many, many institutions are embracing what I would call their anchor mission, aligning their procurement and hiring and investment and their social services and all of that to try to benefit the community. So it's not easy. These are big bureaucracies, and they've got their own cultures, but linking them to the needs of the community, particularly at this time when fiscal resources at the government level are so constrained, that I think is very powerful for community development. And just one statistic, if you take all the hospitals and all the universities in the United States and you were to 
aggregate, put in one pot all of their economic activity, for instance, their procurement, that amounts every year, year in, year out, to over a trillion dollars of economic activity in these wow. really landlocked place-based institutions. Imagine what might be possible as we work with them to localize that economic activity. How could that benefit the communities around them, particularly within this framework of community wealth building? That's the challenge ahead of us, I think. And that is a major challenge, Ted. And I, I really wanted to ask you about this sort of renegotiating the relationship between anchor institutions and nearby and or adjacent communities. So you're right, there's been a lot of distrust. Often there's a lot of history in those relationships. Um, I am from the Harlem community in New York and went to undergraduate and graduate school at Columbia University and remember being traumatized as an incoming freshman about the way that we were told to navigate our relationship with the Harlem community. And it being from Harlem, it, it was, it sort of, put in place a frame for me for the rest of my academic career that there was not really a good relationship between the university and this community around it. Well, now that's really being rethought and the, the university is building a new campus, which is gonna occupy more square footage than the World Trade Center in Harlem proper. But that is also driving a tremendous amount of gentrification and displacement. So yep. in, in an effort to, to renegotiate those relationships and be a part of a community, how do you make sure that the economic benefits sort of cascade outward and don't force, you know, long-term residents to, to have to look elsewhere. Well, that's, you know, the, you've really put your finger on one of the great difficulties in economic development right now, whether it's with city investments or it's anchor institution-led strategies. Let's give the institutions the benefit of the doubt, even though there's a very checkered history and some of it appalling, as you've suggested. But if we even give them the benefit of the doubt and say, well, these institutions really do want to do right by the community, what tends to happen, unless it's really focused on at the get-go, is that these development strategies do improve the community in a way. There's more retail, there's better housing, the streets become safer. But then one day you look up and all the residents who live there for decades in the difficult times have all been displaced. And that's one of the nasty realities of economic development in America is that so often when you win, in a sense, you end up ultimately losing. losing. And that's because the prices go up, the taxes go up, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, there's West Philadelphia, the University of Pennsylvania, it's a very interesting model because back about 15 or so years ago, a couple members of the University of Pennsylvania community, I think a student and a faculty member, were shot on campus by residents who lived in West Philadelphia, which is a very low-income community right adjacent, like bang on the doorstep of the mm -hmm. University of Pennsylvania. And the president of the university and the trustees decided they needed to do something because if nothing else, it was bad press. So they started something called the West Philadelphia Initiative, which in some regards has been extraordinary, has moved procurement at the University of Pennsylvania from less than $2 million in West Philadelphia businesses to today almost $100 million. So it's been very successful at moving this. 
And yet they're experiencing there the same sort of gentrification issues, people being priced out. And I once heard the former president of the University of Pennsylvania asked if there was anything she would do different after, on reflection, looking back at this whole story. And the one thing she said was, I'll never forget, she said, I would have planned for success. In other words, I would have planned that what we were doing was really going to have the community take off, and I would have found ways to ensure people can stay where they are. And, you know, that, Bernice, gets to building into these strategies from the very beginning, things like community land trusts where you're taking possession of land on behalf of the community and developing permanently affordable housing. It's where community benefits agreements come in. And it's also where anchor strategies, we often hear them talking, I hear people say anchor-led development. Well, personally, I'm opposed to anchor-led development. What we need is anchor and community reciprocity and engagement together to develop the community in ways that is, to use the hacking phrase, a win-win, that the mm-hmm. anchor institutions get what they need, but the people that live in the community get what they need as well. What can people do in their own individual capacities to bring about the kind of positive change in their own communities to make their communities more sustainable? So we, we see what some of the bigger institutions are doing, community-based foundations, economic development entities, but what can folks at an individual level be able to do to contribute to this conversation and and make the kind of transformation they want to see in the places where they live and work? Or as business people. Or as business people. Or as businesses. What we're hoping to do in the collaborative and, you know, is a vision we have, but it it relies on the very folks, local businesses, local community-based organizations, individual citizens, is build a broad movement in this country for community wealth building, that this is the kind of development we want. And in that regard, we have a a website at the Democracy Collaborative called community-wealth.org. And it has the story of about 5% of the information on this website, which has thousands of links. 5% is about the Democracy Collaborative. 95% is about the extraordinary innovation that's taking place in communities all over the country. So I'd say first, people, we all need to educate ourselves. There is a different approach to economic development. There are models that work. People can own the place they work in. Look at Evergreen. It's not a fantasy. It's not from another country. It's right here, homegrown America. So that's one. You know, we need to get involved in our communities in the decisions that how our budgets in our cities are being allocated. Do we want our public funds uh, creating the kind of jobs that maybe a Walmart will create or, you know, a low-wage job? Or do we want our money used to really build something like we've, you know, started to do here in Cleveland? I would say there are a lot of very interesting community-based organizations that are doing advocacy all over the country. We work with National People's Action, that's one, but there are many everywhere that have a real equity and inclusion economic agenda. If you're a small business person, there are organizations like the Business Alliance for Living Local Economy, Valley, I'm on the board of that. You know, check them out because they are all about reinforcing the local economy with local businesses that have this loyalty to the community. If you work in community development, maybe a community development corporation, you know, the days when a CDC 
could just do housing and bricks and mortar work, those days are over. We need to do enterprise development. Our people are hurting for employment and jobs. We need to retool our organizations that have produced great results in the past, but there's a new day. And we need to rebuild the economy from the ground up in our communities. And these kinds of institutions are very, very important for that. So I think there are a lot of ways um, uh, to get involved. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and if anyone wants to reach out to me at the Democracy Collaborative, we have tons of material. It's all open source. We give it away. Come visit us. We'd be happy to partner with you. If you'd like to learn more about community wealth building and the Democracy Collaborative, you can check out the important work they are doing at democracycollaborative.org. Thank you all for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this bonus episode. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infiniteearthradio and Twitter by following at infineearthradio. Radio.